What's up, Embrace? Hope you guys are doing well today. So glad to be with you. So glad that you guys are all here. Uh, My name is Travis. If I've not met you yet, I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the absolute privilege and honor to get to share our message today, which if I'm being honest, it just sounds a little bit crazy that I would be chosen to do this. Like I just think about all the amazing men and women of God who have come to share. Our lead pastor, Adam, who just brings this authentic fire and passion for Jesus every single week. I think of our teaching pastor, James, who's one of the most Christ-like people that I have ever met in my entire life. We've had national renowned speakers and best-selling authors that have come to teach and encourage our church And then there's me. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, I've had some pretty incredible accomplishments in my own life. Like last summer, my co-ed rec sand volleyball team, we got second place in our end-of-the-year tournament. So that was pretty great. Like if I'm just listing things, I'm slightly taller than the national average. So that's pretty cool. I've trained my dog, Ziva, to sit stay and roll over all on command. So maybe now that I think about it, maybe I shouldn't sell myself so short. Maybe I'm exactly where I should be today. But honestly, though, it is an absolute honor to get to speak with you today and speak with all of our campuses today. And it is especially exciting because I do have a bit of a tie to each one of our campuses. See, my beautiful wife, Jessie, and I used to live up in the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul. So St. Croix campus, man, amazing church up in St. Croix. We got to attend there a couple of times. Um, I did grow up, though, in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So I spent many childhood field trips at the Washington Pavilion. So downtown campus, love your campus. Um, I spent my first month and a half on staff at Embrace right here at 57th Street, so I, of course, adore 57th Street as well. The T Campus pastor and I have the same name, and even crazier, our wives have the same name as well, so I'm practically part of the family in T. And then finally, Sertoma Campus. Man, Sertoma, you know what it is. Sertoma is my home where I get to be the campus pastor, and it's filled with some of the most amazing people that I could have ever hoped to share my life with, and Jesse and I are so thankful for you. Sir Toma, but as we get started today and jump into our message, I'd be so honored if you guys would just pray with me. Let's pray together. Um, God, we thank you for today. Um, Pray that you would just move um, through your word. God, your word is powerful, um, and I pray that it would be our guiding um, light today, um, that it would be none of my words, but instead the words from you would speak powerfully um, through your word, God. So we just love you so much. Pray that you'd move today. Uh, Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today's message is called Elephants. And coming out of Easter, you may be thinking bunnies would be a more appropriate title for this message. And I want to encourage you, if you were looking to laugh today, that bunny joke was your opportunity. And you may not get many more, so I want to encourage you to take those opportunities where you can today. But we're going to talk about the elephants in the room as it relates to church. We're going to talk about the things that many of us believe about churches, and more importantly, the elephants in the room that keep people out of churches. Why? Well, because sometimes we just need to call a spade a spade. There are things that we do at church that frankly turn people off. And when we're being really honest, there's things that we do at church that is just plain weird. Like, for example, the very premise of church where we gather a bunch of people together that don't know each other very well, what's the first thing that we do? Well, we sing, of course. Of course we do. Why wouldn't we? Right? And then when we tell people that, they're like, we sing? 
I don't sing. I've never sang in front of anyone in my entire life. And now you want me to go to a brand new building to me and just belt it out in, bunch, in front of a bunch of strangers? Like, I'm not positive that I'm interested in that. At least I'd embrace the music is pretty loud, so maybe it's less awkward. But I think that a lot of us have a small panic attack when the worship leader says something like, okay, now just the voices. It's like, eh, I don't know if you really want that. I don't know if you know what you're asking for. Our communion. Communion, if we grew up in the church, it's a pretty straightforward concept. But if we didn't, and we just take it at face value, it just looks like a bunch of people going through the world's stingiest buffet line. It's like torn up piece of bread and some juice is all we get. At least at some churches, you get your own cup of juice. At Embrace, if you want juice, you got to dip your bread in the bowl and let it soak in. Yum. That sounds really good. And finally, our turn and greets where we shake hands, give high fives, and say hello to the strangers next to us. And when we're in an elevator, literally touching shoulders with people next to us, we still make absolutely no effort to talk with people that we don't know. The rule is you keep your eyes straight forward. You beg for that door to open so that you can escape this chamber of awkwardness. But not at church. No, no, no. We talk to people we don't know at church. We say hi. We intentionally bang our hands together. Why? Well, because it's church. And we do weird stuff at church. Now, don't get me wrong, meeting new people is one of my favorite things in the world to do, so I love turn and greets, right? Communion is amazing. When we know what it is, it's one of the most powerful and life-changing symbols that we can ever participate in. Same thing with singing and worship, but with no context, no framework around the things that we're doing. These are just traditions that isolate people, they create uncertainty, and they even make people want to avoid them altogether, Sometimes. So today we're going to take a look at four elephants in the room at church. Four reasons why people don't go to church, and hopefully we speak to them in a way that's helpful and find out what the Bible and more importantly what Jesus has to say about these different topics. So hopping in, elephant number one, elephant in the room number one, the Bible is not relevant. Now, admittedly, this is maybe a tough one to start with, mostly because I said we're going to answer some of these elephants by looking at the Bible for answers, but some of us don't even think that the Bible is relevant. So you're going to have to bear with me for a moment, and hopefully we can speak to this again in a way that is helpful. So when I was 20 years old, um, I was a college student at the Harvard of the Upper Midwest. Some of us know it as South Dakota State University. Go Jackrabbits. And um, I actually had a pretty good thing going up at SDSU. I had a lot of friends. I was doing pretty good in school. I had a pretty good job. But there would just be these little moments in my day, these little moments of emptiness, these little moments of sadness, these little moments of longing for something more out of my life. Maybe you've experienced something like that before, but I'll never forget in one of those moments, I decided that I was going to look to the Bible for some answers. See, I grew up going to church. I actually got confirmed. Some of you Lutherans know what it means to be confirmed. But on my confirmation date, my grandma gave me a Bible as a gift. And if I'm being honest, that was probably the last time that I had touched that Bible. But for some reason, in that moment of longing, I decided that I was going to look to that book for the answer. So having no idea where to start, I decided that I was going to start on page one. Most books start on page one. So I thought, okay, page one. Genesis 1, 1. And I just started reading. And I was about a paragraph in. I thought to myself, man, this has got to be one of the dumbest books that I've ever read in my entire life. Like, honestly, I just thought, you know, this sounds unintelligent. It doesn't make any sense. I'm frustrated and confused by it. So I just closed the book. I was one paragraph in and I had seen enough. I've decided that the Bible is not relevant to my life. It provides no help to me. It has no bearing on anything that I have going on in my life. 
Well, about two years later, two years after that, I got asked to go to a church. And so I decided that I would go. And from the moment that I walked in the door, something just felt different about that church. The pastor got up and spoke, and he was saying things that were so relevant to my life and almost felt like his messages were specifically for me. I don't know if you've ever experienced something like that, but it just felt like his messages were specifically for me. And even crazier, he would use the Bible to teach and make his points, and I could actually understand the text. It actually started to make sense to me. So as I started to grow in my faith and learn more, I decided that maybe I should get a Bible of my own. If the pastor can get all this amazing content, like specifically for my life, maybe I could just do the same thing, get a Bible of my own, and just kind of cut out the middleman. So I got myself an NIV Life Application Study Bible. Let me tell you that this Bible, it changed my life. Like this time, I started in the New Testament, so I would read these stories of Jesus. I would read letters from Paul. When I would get confused by any of the texts, I'd read the study notes on the bottom of the page. And it was like reading a thriller from my favorite fiction writer. Like I could not get enough of God's word. It would encourage me and bring me to tears. It would convict me and show me a better way. I was overwhelmed by, the, by having this God that knows me and loves me. And not only did this God know me and love me, he knew me and loved me so much that he wrote a book about it. So I have to ask the question, what changed from my confirmation gift? I had already had a Bible. I'd tried this before. What changed from my confirmation gift? Well, I kind of had thought that maybe it was a different version of Scripture. You know, some, some Scriptures are written in more common, contemporary language, easier to understand, and some are written with words that we don't use anymore. So I thought maybe that was the reason. But then I looked at the Bible. This is actually the Bible right here. Um, and it was an NIV version, just like, just like the study Bible that I love so much. So what changed? Well, I did. I changed. Like, I was, I was ready this time. See, Hebrews 4.12, it says that the word of God is living and active. So the Bible can't be irrelevant because it's alive and moving. The heart of it doesn't change, only our context does. So thankfully, Scripture is breathing, and it's ready to breathe life into each and every one of us. We just have to be ready for it. So like, if we believe, like I did, that the Bible is always going to be irrelevant to us, then the Bible is always going to be irrelevant to us. But if we take God at his word and we believe that scripture is alive and moving, then he will use it to move inside of each and every one of us. Moving on to elephant number two, the church is filled with a bunch of judgmental hypocrites. Man, that's strong language. Who wrote this? The church is filled with a bunch of judgmental hypocrites. Those of us who believe this elephant believe that the same people who claim to be perfect moral examples on Sunday mornings are the same people who treat people terribly all week long. Right? They, they judge other people for the way that they live their lives, but they're doing even worse things in their own life. We think that if, if this is what it means to be someone who goes to church, I don't want any part of that. Well, if this is you and you feel this way, I just want to encourage you that you are in excellent company. I just want to read for us what Jesus says in Matthew 23. It's kind of long, so bear with me. But he starts in verse 2 by saying, The teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. That's kind of a mouthful, mouthful, but essentially what he's saying is, is the religious elite at the time, the religious leaders at the time, they know the rules really, really well. They know the rules well. But in verse thir- 3 he says, So practice and obey what they tell you, but don't follow their example, for they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. 
Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside. And they wear robes with extra long tassels. They scream at people in traffic with a fish decal on the back of their car. I added that last one. Uh, But verse 13. What sorrow awaits you, teaches the religious law and Pharisees? You're hypocrites. If you shut the door on the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, you won't go in yourself and you don't let others in either. He's calling them out for not inviting people into a real relationship with God. He's saying that you have missed the mark. Finally, in verse 27, he finishes by saying, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of the religious law and Pharisees? You're hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs. You're beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you're filled with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly you look like righteous people, but inwardly... You're filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Just to be super clear, if Jesus wasn't here, his feelings on hypocrites in the church, he's not a fan, right? Not a fan. Doing things just for show, not a fan. Telling people to do one thing and doing another yourself, not a fan. But I would humbly suggest to all of us today that this is maybe less of a church people thing And it's more of a human people thing. Like, I'm not taking sides with either type of person, but I will say that Jesus is the man that we come to church to follow. We don't follow the people. People are imperfect. People fail. People make mistakes. Right? But we come to follow the one person that is perfect. In the text, Jesus isn't railing against them for not being perfect. He's calling them out for pretending like they are. So again, we don't come to follow the people. We come to follow Jesus. Moving on to elephant number three, the church just wants our money. So at this time at all of our campuses, we're going to take our offering. Just kidding. Not going to do that. This is a fun one, right? So when I was living in Minneapolis, I did not work at a church. I was actually a banker, which was a really great job for me. But I was heavily involved at my local church in northeast Minneapolis, and I loved it. I was a part of our financial leadership team. We called it our generosity team. And our job was to help cultivate a culture of generosity at our church. So I was telling a friend of mine about what we do. I said, you know, we talk to people about their finances. We talk about maybe what God wants for their money, those types of things. And I'll never forget her response. She said, ugh. I said, oh, don't you just hate that? Don't you just hate that? All the church ever wants to do is talk about money. Don't you just hate that? And I was like, oh, man. Like, I'm really sorry that you feel that way. This is actually a volunteer position, so I just I volunteered for it. It's not, it's not something that I hate. If I did, I just wouldn't do it. Um, but awkward silence followed after that, I think, and then I think she just walked away. But I think a lot of us feel the same way that my friend does, right? What does my money have to do with church? Like, I don't want to go if I'm just going to be guilted into giving my hard-earned money to this institution. What if I told you that it was never about your money? Better yet, what what if Jesus told you it was never about how much money you gave? In Mark chapter 12, verse 41, it says this. It says, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put, and he watched the crowd putting in their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you that this poor widow has put in more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, everything, all that she had to live on. So we can believe that all the church wants is our money, but we would be so mistaken if we think that that is all that Jesus wants from us. Jesus says, look at these people putting in their large checks at church. Good for them. 
Like, that is great for them. I want that lady's pennies. Like, she's getting none of her hope, none of her joy from her finances. She is trusting God with everything that she has. Jesus is saying, I want your faithfulness. I don't need your money. Two small copper coins or two truckloads of gold. It makes no difference to me as long as I have you. I want you. Like, I only want your money and that I know your money is tied to your heart. I want your heart. Generosity is what God wants for us. It's not about what he wants from us. What he wants for us is faithfulness to him and relationship with him. He doesn't need our money. And finally, the elephant in the room, number four, I don't need church because I am good enough the way that I am. We think, I don't need church to make me a better person. I'm already a pretty good mom or a pretty good dad. I'm already a pretty good husband or wife. I'm a productive member of society. I care for other people. I'm not a bad person. I don't need church to tell me that I need to change. I am good enough the way that I am. And our culture agrees with this as well, right? They just say you need to find your personal truth, find what makes you happy, do what brings you joy. You don't need church or the crutch of religion. We just need ourselves because ourselves are good enough. Well, the beautiful thing about Jesus is that he counters culture. He always has. Like when we were talking about hypocrites with the religious leaders and the Pharisees, I want you to know that the Pharisees were the elite people at that time. Their culture idolized those people. And yet Jesus, he tore them apart, right? Because he saw their true heart and their true motives. And we love that, or at least I did, when Jesus flew in the face of culture in that way and called them out. So that's the beautiful thing about Jesus is that he counters culture. The scary thing about Jesus is that he counters culture. Even when it's a part of the culture that we agree with, like this idea that we're all good. But because he's God, because he's holy, because he walked this earth and lived a completely perfect life, his standard for what it means to be good, it's just different than what ours is. In Luke 18, Jesus says something really crazy. He says that no one is good. He says that no one is good, not one person. In this moment, I feel like Jesus hasn't seen Fixer Upper. It's like, how can Chip and Joanna Gaines not be good? Come on, Jesus. Like, seriously, they are good, right? And Jesus says no. He says no one is good. No one except God alone So again, Jesus' standard for good is completely different than what our standard is. We're going to have some verses up on the screen from Matthew chapter 5, and I'm just going to read them as well, just kind of summarize them. But we're going to go through what Jesus' standards for good are. In verse 21 of Matthew 5, he says that you think that murder is bad? You think that murder is bad? If you're angry with someone else or if you hate someone else, know that you are guilty of murdering them in your heart. Jesus says in Matthew 27 that you think you're good because you've not had an affair. If you've even looked at a woman with lust in your heart, if you've looked at a man with lust in your heart, you're already guilty of committing adultery with them. He said if you've gazed at a man or a woman for even a moment too long and wondered what it would be like to be with them, you've already committed adultery with them in your heart. Verse 39, he says, don't resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, let them slap you on the left cheek as well. He says, if anyone sues you to take your shirt, give them your coat and your shoes too. He says that you agree that you're supposed to love your neighbor. I want you to love your enemy. 
And not only do I want you to love your enemy, I want you to pray for people who have hurt you, those who look down on you and persecute you. I want you to pray for those people. Doesn't that sound like a completely different standard of good? Guys, just to be uncomfortably vulnerable with you right now, I am guilty of murder. Okay, I've hated somebody before. I've been angry with somebody before. By Jesus' standards, I'm guilty of murder. It crushes me and kills me to admit this, but I'm an adulterer. By Jesus' standards, I am an adulterer. I've looked at a woman with less than pure intentions before. I hate to admit that, but it's true. I've not recently stood in any lines to be slapped by somebody. I don't like praying for my neighbor, do you? Praying for the people that hate us? It changes the story when we actually apply these standards to ourselves. Remember, Jesus' standard for good is just different than ours. But thankfully, the good news is that even when we fall short in these areas, even when we're guilty of these things, man, we have a God who loves us and and cares for us so much that he forgives us. And we can't follow these standards ourselves. Thankfully, Jesus, because he set them, he can. That's why I'm so grateful that we come to church to follow Jesus, not any one of us. So finishing things up today and looking at all these big elephants in the room, this idea that the church is filled with hypocrites, this idea that the church only wants our money, this idea that we're good enough, that we don't need church, all the responses and answers to those issues, they point to one person, don't they? They point to Jesus. Jesus, the one who calls out the hypocrites and tells them to change. Jesus, the one who wants our relationship and our faithfulness, not just our money. Jesus, the one and only one who is good enough. Like, what if instead of an institution filled with all these, or with this idea that it's just filled with all these big elephants in the room, the church was filled with just a bunch of people who were trying to follow Jesus with everything that they had? Just a group of people who wanted to follow Jesus' radical example of goodness in their lives. Imagine if the church you and I, the ones who want to follow Jesus, decided that we're going to consistently go the extra mile for our neighbor, that when they ask for our shirt, we give them our shoes and our coat too. Imagine if we decided to pray for people who hurt us instead of look for ways to hurt them back. Imagine if we just pursued this radical purity in our relationships and our marriages, that we tried to avoid objectifying another person at all costs. Imagine if the church, you and I, we saw anger and hatred as murder in the way that Jesus does. So instead of feeling those things, we fleed from them. And we pursued reconciliation and love rather than judgment and hate. Can I interest anyone in a world like that? Once more, we come to, we come to church to follow Jesus. And what if the church... If you and I actually did any of this stuff, man, one thing is true. I can guarantee it would be much harder to come up with a list of reasons to stay out of church. We follow Jesus because his standard is worth following. The people of the church, man, we fail. We're imperfect. We're messed up. We're broken. But Jesus, he is perfect. He has never failed, and he never will. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your standard. We thank you for your bar of radical goodness. We thank you for modeling it for us. 
God, thank you for showing what you want for us because it's better. God, so would you just show us, would you convict us in your word? Would you convict us in our everyday life on how to love our neighbor, on how to care for the people in our lives? Would you show us how to follow you and not follow people? God, would you change the way that we think about church? Would you make it about you and not about any one of us, God? We just pray and beg you that you would do that in our lives. We love you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.